Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. And that's, I think this episode is is an episode that's pretty much overdue. And, I, you know, a lot of times I talk about business, I talk about strategy. And one thing that we've, you know, talked about every once in a while is maybe like trademarks, but we really haven't really dove into patents. So today we have our patent boss, Carrie. So Carrie, why don't you give our audience a little, uh, little details about who you are and, and, and kind of like a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, so thank you for having me. My name is Carrie Seacard. I'm owner of Virtual IP Law. I've been a patent attorney for a little over 10 years. My dad's also a patent attorney. He got me into it at a young age. Um, worked for a few different firms, but the traditional law firm partnership wasn't really a good fit for me. So I started my own firm. It's been almost two years now, and we've grown to a team of seven patent attorneys. And we're all over the United States uh, operating virtually. One of the good things that came out of the pandemic is, you know, a lot of people have realized the beauty of Zoom. So uh, it's really helped my business to flourish. So, I mean, you know, I would do my due diligence before I interview someone. And, and it seems like you were like raised to be where you are currently right now. Like it, it's not only ingrained in your DNA, but obviously you went to school and I think you, you got like some engineering background and you got a little technology. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, was that something that your dad kind of pushed you to, or is that something that you just felt that you needed to do because you wanted to do it? A little bit of both. I really loved that he was always learning about new technology. And even back in the nineties, he was able to work from home, which was kind of unheard of back then. And he was just always learning about medical devices. And I had a love of engineering and math, um, which is a little unusual. <laughs> Most people, math isn't their favorite necessarily. So I naturally led into engineering. Um, patents have kind of exploded a little bit, but they're still not very, you know, there's not a lot of knowledge about there. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about is it worth getting a patent? Is it not worth getting a patent? Things like that. Um, so it's really helpful having that engineering background to be able to talk to engineers about their ideas and things like that. And my dad said, well, if you're going to be any type of engineer, um, you know, electrical engineering is probably the way to go because, you know, computers and things like that are advancing so quickly. It's hard to believe it's been almost 20 years since I got my engineering degree. Um, so it's it's been a little time, but things are just advancing so quickly. It's great having that foundation of engineer trans transitions well for patents. Wow, wow. So, so let, yeah. let's back it up a little bit. And, and for the listener, right, you know, so they probably heard the word copyright. They probably heard the word trademark. They probably heard the word patent. And, you know, the reality is, is that there, there's similarities, there's some overlap. But, you know, could you kind of define the differences between these three and, and when they should be applied? Yes, absolutely. So 
I love to use um, the simple example of John Deere tractor because they do have a lot of intellectual property. So the trademark would be on the name John Deere. They actually have a trademark on the color John Deere. You can, you naturally have trademark rights wherever you're using the mark. So a trademark internationally is, or I should say nationally through the federal registry is not for everyone. If you're just operating in one state and you don't plan to have clients in multiple states may not be for you. But if you're a big name like John Deere, you wanna protect that name in all 50 states, then it would be worth getting a trademark on your name. Now the copyright would be, maybe they have a brochure or the operating manual on the tractor itself. Any works of art that are related to that would be a copyright. Your copyright also exists. You have natural copyright when you create that work of art. But if you ever wanna be able to sue someone for copying your work of art, then you would wanna register it with the copyright office. Now the patent, on the other hand, Patents are different because there, there aren't natural rights that are tied to patents, the same as trademarks and copyrights. You have to file a patent to get your rights on it. And the patent would cover, let's say you come up with a new tractor or maybe a new software system, or maybe there's a cool John Deere app that allows you to look up tractors, something like that. So that would be patentable. Um, the most important thing with a patent is to make sure that you're protected before you disclose the idea. Because if you disclose the idea, that can kind of have an impact on whether you can or cannot get a patent. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, let's just dive into patents a little bit more. And, and, and anyone that has ever listened to Shark Tank, they're probably familiar with the terminology utility patent, but that's just one type of patent. So let's just talk about like the variables of patents and, and, and how they protect you and, and when should you use them? Yes. So patents are most are best used for people who either want to make and sell the product themselves or if you're interested in licensing the technology behind your product. That's usually the most common uses and it can just be an asset. So I, common, I often say I like to turn your ideas into valuable assets. A lot of companies spend a lot of time on research and development and they don't really actually turn that into, the, into that asset that they need for a patent. Very cool. Um, Very cool. So, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, like I said before, I mean, you were kind of raised into this I mean, you have the engineer mindset, but obviously with, with patents and being an attorney, you have to have some creative knowledge as well, too. And you have to have the legal things so that there's multiple different things in your brain, left brain, right brain, always fighting, <laughs> competing. So, like, let's talk about you as like a kid, like, you know, what kind of kid were you growing up? Well, that's a great question. Um, I was always... I loved uh, cars, anything mechanical, just trying to figure out how things worked, how they came apart, what, you know, what made an engine tick, what is the crankshaft, how does the gas make everything work. So I definitely always had a love of how, how things are put together and how do things work, always questioning why and, you know, why do we do these, why do we do things a certain way? Can we make it better? That's the thing I love the most about patents is it's always it's either a new advancement or it's an improvement on an existing advancement and it's just it's really cool always learning about that um and i'm not sure if i fully answered your question earlier about utility so there are different types of patents the utility covers 
you know, the usefulness of something. There are design patents that cover the appearance of it. And there are plant patents, which I don't even touch because that's more for someone with a biology background. I'm, my background is a little bit more of the hardcore electrical engineering software based. Um, those are very specialized, so. I think it's very interesting. I mean, like, so when would you make a, like a referral or a recommendation for someone to, to, to get a patent? Are you talking about if somebody's creating a new app or are they taking, like you said, maybe a tractor and they're re-engineering it? Maybe they're changing it from gas to hydro or something new. Is that a good time to get a patent? Yes. And the timing wise, you want to make sure you have that protection in place before you disclose it. That's the biggest thing. So we used to be a first to invent system, which was, I, I really loved the first to invent system. As an engineer, we had to keep lab notebooks and have them witnessed as to when you invented things. And we transitioned in 2013 to a first to file system. So now it's literally a race to the patent office. So if you disclose your idea, although the risk is relatively low, it's still risky that someone else could take your idea and either file their own patent on it, or even worse, they could improve it and file a patent on that improvement. And then it makes your ability to really, you know, commercialize and market the product not, not as viable. Um, sometimes there's just a lot of value in being patent pending. And that's why, you know, you brought up Shark, Shark Tank. They often ask, do you have a patent on file? Because you know they don't get into the details, but there are some risks if you're disclosing the idea without having a patent on file. And it, it just makes your idea a little bit more valuable, sometimes a lot more valuable. <laughs> so, I mean, just to talk about that, right? I mean, obviously you're saying about Shark Tank going on there and you're disclosing it to the world saying that, right? Mm -hmm. There's no N NDAs in that, in that situation. So I wanna talk about like your worst case analysis or scenario that you've ever been into to where somebody may have had an NDA in place and their patent wasn't even on filed yet. And then someone may have took their idea even with the NDA being in place. Have you had that situation before? Uh, yes, there are, there are actually so many examples even down to the, the right person didn't sign the NDA. Um, if you don't have the person that's in charge of the company signing your NDA, NDA it can actually make the whole NDA null and void. Wow. Um, and the bigger, so uh, breaking that down a little, like Shark Tank, for example, there are no NDAs in place. So they're, the only way to really protect yourself in that situation is to file a provisional. And literally, even if you just file it yourself, you can go to the patent office. There are some really good resources that you can use. Most attorneys will tell you that you have to have a patent attorney. Yes, it would be ideal, but not every startup can afford a patent attorney right out the gate. The very least, get that protection in place yourself. And then a year from then, you can follow up with a, with a patent attorney to get the non-provisional. Yeah, I'm loving this conversation because, you know, I've, I've had I've filed two trademarks, right? I have a trademark for my Cerebra 360 and a trademark for Boston Cage. And to what you say, right, I mean, you could file this information yourself, but there's always that caveat, that always that catch, especially with trademarks when you're filing for multiple classes, right? So let's say if I'm filing for class 40, 25, and 16, and 40 and 25 are great, but 16 is a hurdle. And it bounced, the entire trademark gets bounced back because of that one thing. And you can't just say, forget about 16 and move forward with 40 and 25. Is that the same kind of thing with patents? Yes, it is very much so. The one difference between trademarks and patents is 
patents have basically what's called a provisional application. It's kind of like a placeholder. It would be, there isn't really anything in, well, it's kind of like an intent to use application. So I'm not sure if in trademarks, you can file a use-based, which means you're already using the mark, or you can file an intent to use trademark, which means I'm intending to use it in commerce, but I'm not using it yet. Provisional is kind of similar in the patent space. Say, I wanna protect this idea, but I'm not really commercializing it yet. And then you have a year to convert that to what's called a non-provisional or sometimes a utility application that is examined. Um, you know, in the trademark space, both of those are examined, but in the patent space, the provisional is not. So that is something that is probably the only thing it's not perfect or it's not ideal to file yourself but if there was one thing that you could do yourself i would say file that provisional the one the one thing i would caution or, you know there are a lot of cautions to that but if if worst case you're going to disclose something you want to have some protection in place you can't have an nda file your own provisional you have to convert within one year that is not extendable if you don't convert you lose the rights to do so and that gives you a year to try to come up with funding and find an attorney and and all of those things and your patent pending during that time so yeah, patent pending it's, it's a it's, i think we hear it so much it sounds sexy oh patent pending it's kind of like it, it's it a is. turn on for investors for sure <laughs> so i mean like diving into i mean obviously you you raise into this i mean you have a partnership with your dad so most people like i have a 16 year old son right now and he's a 16 year old teenager and he's going through that age group right now where no matter what i say he doesn't want to hear it right so I'm sure you went through that with your dad as well. So when did that conversion happen to where you're on the same level with your dad, you guys are seeing somewhat eye to eye and you decide to partner with him? Yeah, um, I think right from the get go, I kind of had to separate dad from Dave <laughs> at work and just kind of keep that separ separation of, okay, it's not dad telling me what to do. You know, it's Dave giving me giving me work advice um but we've we've always kind of worked together in some capacity but never never to the extent that we are working together now um just different opportunities we've had or not had to work together and when this opportunity came up to start this firm together um it was just it was just the perfect timing and he has given me such good advice and been just an amazing mentor um, over my career. I've been very fortunate to have his guidance. So Very cool, very cool. So being that your dad's been in the game so long, I would think that he has a lot of systems and a lot of detail-oriented things that are already in place. So like, what does your onboarding process look like when someone comes to you and they're throwing up saying they have all these ideas and here's my schematics and my drawings and I have this wire board and all this craziness and you're like, wait a minute, what's the next step? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I always start with um, an initial consultation for no charge, minimum of 15 minutes. It usually runs to at least a, uh, 30 minutes just to get the lay of the land to start. Have you had any public disclosures? What are your plans for this patent? Are you going to be making this a product? Are you going to be licensing it? If you, your attorney should be asking you those types of questions before they're just diving in because if you're 
you know, um, I often ask, is it going to be an offensive strategy, right? Are you going to be going after people that are copying you? Do you want to have a lot of patents in place to be able to do that? Or is it more of a defensive strategy where you just don't want anyone else to copy you? And, you know, maybe you'll send a couple of cease and desist letters, but you're really not going to be actively going after people. Um, and that really determined, that makes a big difference in what your patent application is going to look like. And that is one thing that I'm very fortunate of having the benefit of not only many years myself, but um, many years of my dad's just guidance of asking these questions up front. You know, some clients literally, they, you know, they don't have the funds to you know, it's, it's expensive, but it's over time, right? The, the term of a patent is 20 years. So there's filing fees that are due, and then there's back and forth that happens over one to five years. And then there are maintenance fees due at eight, um, four, eight, and 12 years. It can be expensive, right? But for most going companies, it's well worth the protection. I mean, it comes back tenfold. I've seen patents sold for millions, sometimes even billions of dollars or licensed that's passive income, you know, for, but some startups, they don't have that kind of money. And literally they just want to have that sexy patent pending for a couple of years. And so we literally will just file enough of a baseline to get them a patent on file, knowing that maybe this won't issue into a full patent down the road. Maybe this won't be something that they'll be able to enforce, or maybe, maybe it will just be a really, really narrow mm-hmm. patent, but at least in that interim, they'll, they'll be able to label things patent pending, which is very attractive to investors Mm -hmm. and things like that. And sometimes just that in and of itself can be very valuable. So um, part of the driving factor behind me starting my firm was one of my frustrations with a lot of brick and mortar firms. And it's fine for larger companies. They kind of have to have a set fee and charge a set amount for every client. By being virtual and everyone working from home, we can be a little bit more flexible with our pricing so that, you know, some of our startup clients that maybe their technology is really simple, but they need a lot more handholding. We can have kind of a lower rate where we don't have a fixed fee, but then some of our larger clients, we have that, you know, more rigid pricing structure. And it's just, it's so nice having that flexibility of working with the smaller clients. So they don't have to, you know, they, they can have affordable services and they don't, not everyone needs a Cadillac patent. Some people just need a scooter patent, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And I think, um, I think one of the key words that you reuse over and over again, since we've been talking, and I think I want the listener to really hone in on this word is examine, right? And it's, it's, it's one of those words that you think from a doctor standpoint, they're going to examine you. But in reality, I mean, that's what you're doing with these particular patents or with these trademarks and comes to fruition. The other thing that you brought up was being offensive versus defensive. And I think most people don't realize like an offensive tactic is essentially a tactic that you can monetize, right? And I've known people that have went in, they have figured out gaming systems, they've created the game, filed for the patent, and they only did that just so they could sue other companies. And they sue companies enough to where they're millionaires because they're constantly keep suing people. And again, going back to your offensive tactic, but you know, it's the first time I'm actually hearing a lawyer actually say it. Say it yes. it's like it's a, it's a real thing, and it's a, it's I would say like industry wise, 
uh, as far as patents go, like percentages, how many people are more on the offensive versus defensive? I'm not sure about that. Um, it really comes down to the, the client specific desires. Um, I have, you know, I've worked with some clients that that's their strategy. They want to have a lot of patents, whether they are or are not, not actually practicing the invention behind it. And they just want to be able to enforce it. I have some clients that sort of from the same standpoint, want to use it as a passive form of income through licensing instead. Um, it's actually pretty well known that Amazon, they're not very litigious. They're probably not going to sue you. However, if you sue them, be prepared <laughs> because yeah. there's a good chance they've got an arsenal of patents that you're probably infringing. And that's actually part of how they've grown so large is because they turn around and just cross license. So that's another huge advantage to patents that a lot of people aren't aware of is if you have your own patent, um, I like to use the analogy of a spider web, but mm -hmm. build up your own spider web because someone else has their own web of patents that you're probably going to get caught in. Mm -hmm. And so if you get caught in their web, you have your own patents so that you can kind of cross back and forth with. And then if someone gets caught in your web, you can kind of see, hey, what have they got in their web? Is there something that I want? Can I use this as leverage? Maybe they have this really cool feature that I want in my device. Can I use that as leverage? And if you don't have any patents to bring to the table with other big players that do have patents, sometimes you can be at a disadvantage. So there are a lot of other things you can do with a patent for sure. So, I mean, pretty much what you just described to me is like Sun Tzu's art of war in patents. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like you, you take advantage when you when you have to take advantage and you're getting your stance when you need to get your stance. And when someone's weaker, you get the upper hand. And I mean, that's that's what you're describing. So it, it's, it's crazy that that's the way the patent game essentially is behind the scenes if you don't know. Yes, for sure. And we would have to schedule another session to even get started on the NFT blockchain and how that oh. impacts all of this. I mean, it's, it's interesting mind that, that, that you brought that up. So, I mean, like, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because I mean, the NFT space essentially, right? I mean, obviously, someone could use the likeness of something, and it could be like in the background; it doesn't have to be in the forefront. So, like, how would that work as far as creating patents with those NFTs? Then we're not sure yet, and okay. it's most of the applications haven't been examined yet, so we don't have a whole lot of feedback. They're kind of just out there waiting, but it's very interesting. I believe in 2020, something like only a few hundred blockchain related patents were filed. And I believe in 2021, it was in the thousands. Hmm. So it's going to be very interesting. And like, how do you even claim that? I mean, a regular patent, you have, you know, at the end you have your claims. So you'd say I have a chair with, you know, a seat and a back and four legs claiming in blockchain, it's really interesting. And you need to have use. Do you have use when it's an art? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's really pretty interesting. Well, I think the, the point that you made earlier about being first to patent, right? And then with trademarks too, it's always the use. When did you use it? It's a website. So, I mean, having it on the blockchain, it's undisputable who used it first. Wouldn't that be correct in that, that situation? That's correct. And the interesting thing that's still being debated, but there are some um, case law coming down is, uh, is it use because it's not 
use in commerce because it's not the physical commerce it's kind of a digital <laughs> version yeah. of that if you would but on the flip side they're suing people who have the nfts that are similar to federally registered trademarks so if you can sue someone for for using a mark that's similar, that must qualify for use in commerce. It's a really interesting debate going on right now. I'm trying to absorb all the info that I can. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So let's talk about like 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 the, the expansion of your career, right? And I mean, what was here about these overnight successes? Someone's hearing you. And I mean, you're spitting off so much jewels and nuggets right now, just information about trademarks and IP. Like how long have you been on your journey to get to where you are currently? It's been a very long journey. Um, my dad literally started me in patents when I was five years old for father, bring your daughter to work day. I don't know if that's still a thing, um, but he was not one to give you crayons and a coloring book. I got a set of figures to draw. So he just got me hooked at a very young age. Um, I've had the benefit of working for some smaller firms and some larger firms and you just get a good feel for working with different clients. I've worked with solopreneurs right through to, I've worked for large um, clients such as Square. Uh, they do the financial processing systems. And right now we have some good small to mid-size software and um, medical device companies. Um, throughout my career, I, you know, you talk a lot on your podcast about being feeling like you're caged. Um, the traditional law firm partnership model felt like a cage to me. Um, I, I literally thought it was me. I tried working at a few different firms and it just never felt like a good fit. You know, everyone else couldn't wait to be partner. And I just thought, this just sounds awful. <laughs> um, you know, it just, it really does. And um, I thought, okay, well, maybe this firm will be better and, and this firm will be better and nothing against the firms. I think the traditional partnership model is great for some people, but it's just not for me. Um, you know, I had three children. I never had a maternity leave with any of those children. Um, it, it, it was just, it was really not a good workplace. Um, was laid off during the pandemic, which ended up being the best thing that happened to me. I started my own firm with practically nothing. <laughs> my 401k, because um, I was laid off and I didn't have an established firm. I couldn't take any clients with me. So it was definitely a long road. October of 2020, I opened the firm with my dad, my significant other has a background in business. So I was able to lean on him for help with, you know, how to run a business and cash flow and all that. And I was bound and determined. I, I kind of had a guidebook of what not to do because I had worked in so many places. I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, most law firms, you get 20 to 30% of what you bill, really fancy office, really expensive overhead. I just, I wanted, I'd rather work from home, you know, um, <laughs> I, I've had commutes that were four to seven hours a day, uh, round trip. It was, it was just crazy. Um, as my parents, my parents both turned 81 this year. Um, the, one of the last positions I found, they said, you'll be able to work from home whenever you want. I thought, oh, great. 
that ended up not being the case. So needless to say, my dad said, well, start a fully virtual firm. Can you even do that? You have, you must have to have a home, you know, every law firm I've ever worked at, even the ones that claim to be virtual, you have people working from home, but there's a base, you know, someone's opening the mail and answering the phones and doing all that stuff. And the logistics of figuring that out were very challenging. Uh, It took me probably eight months to really get everything ironed out in terms of having the proper IT support in place. Um, Ultimately, I ended up outsourcing a lot of things, bookkeeping, payroll, IT support, found a co-working space to manage my mail for me, um, all that, they even deposit checks for me. So we are truly 100% virtual. Everyone works from home and it's been so freeing. Um, it was a little frustrating at one point in time. I said to my significant other, I never got to find that good boss that was like supportive and family comes first and we're a team and, you know, um, and he said, yeah, but you get to be that boss. And that's so much better. I'm like, that is, <laughs> that is much better. So I know we're spinning way away from patents, but, um, but it's just kind of disrupting that traditional partnership model has been so rewarding. And I, I honestly wasn't sure if anyone else would want to be a part of this. I mean, most law firms have that, you know, you're you're on partnership track and, you know, this is your salary and you have this many hours and the expectations are just crazy. And what we do is already pretty challenging technically and it's high stress. We don't need to add stress on top of that. So my model as of now is I'm 100% owner. Everyone else is, it's kind of just like one big team, one big happy family. We all work from home. We have weekly meetings and every person that I've worked with have said, this is so nice. Like, it's so great. It's so rewarding having a good boss that cares about me. And it's just amazing. And I don't care where people work or when they work, just tell me when you're not going to be available. That's my only requirement. And I just think that, um, you know, it'd be nice if more law firms were like that. <laughs> so, I mean, with, the, with that being said, right, like if you could time travel back and then go back to say in the last 20, 30 years, if there's a point that you could think that was a fork in the road that you were going to go back and change anything, first of all, when would you go back and what would you change? That's a good one. I would say, I don't know, you know, I wouldn't change anything. That's probably not the answer you're hoping for, but I, I'm very happy with all of, even the, even the bad times. Um, I'm not sure if I would have really been able to be a good boss. You know, I've, I've seen so many you know, I wish I could go back and not have had to gone through all of the bad (laughs) experiences that I went through, but I don't think that I would change it because it definitely has helped me to become much more empathetic, much more patient, um, just much more compassionate with people and much more understanding and, uh, just given me that strength and that backbone to do this. And I think I'm at the right point in my career where my kids are a little older. So. 
Very cool. So, I mean, you brought up a thing earlier. You mentioned you have kids, and then you were saying that when you would go to your dad's job, that he wasn't the dad that would give you coloring books and pencils. But the, the irony is, is that, you know, when you're talking about patents, there is a lot of creativity when it comes down to like the patent drawings. Like they're a particular style. You just can't throw something together. There's a particular learning curve to that. So like, just talk about it a little bit. Like what, like why are patents designed the way they are? And, and how does that really work when you're filing for a patent? Great question. So patent drawings are, really meant to convey to someone having the same skill level as you know the patent applicant your invention and how they would be able to build it themselves so let's say um, you have i like to use the chair example just because everyone knows what a chair is Um, you would want to have all of the all of the different views of it so that someone else could put the chair together so you can't just show a view of the front. Um, You want to show the front and the back and both sides and the top and the bottom, and maybe a picture of all of the pieces taken apart. And if there are any special fasteners or screws or things like that, all that needs to be shown. The most challenging thing to be honest with you is that the patent office is a little behind the times. Mm. So all of the drawings as of now need to be for the most part need to be two-dimensional drawings so sometimes that can be a little bit challenging when you're trying to show complex three-dimensional systems so the it's funny that you mentioned that i really didn't realize how much i've learned just about drawings over the years but yeah there there is a lot to it the best thing you can do and that i've um, found to be invaluable is having a good draftsman. There are a lot of people that actually specialize in this and they just do drawings for patents. Some of the simpler things, if it's an app for a, you know, uh, like an, an app on your phone, that's probably just going to be some flow charts and some screenshots, probably nothing too complicated to it. But if it's a complicated medical device with all these components, then I typically involve a draftsman because there are all kinds of crazy rules about shading and cross sections and things like that. If you show a cross section, you have to have it marked a certain way and all that. So these are the kind of nuances that if you're filing a provisional patent yourself, those really aren't examined, so you're fine. But once you get to that non-provisional stage, it's so easy to make a simple mistake with a drawing, for example, and you can't change that. You can't go back and fix it. So. I would think the skill level of the designers or the people that are drawing them, I would say they're relative to architects, right? I mean, they, they have oh, like yeah. a similar lingo, similar line st- structures. I mean, kind of like when I see your logo, I, I, I first of all, I love, I love your logo, right? And I can Thank see you. how your logo with multiple different things. I mean, you have the virtual aspect to it. You have the inter- interconnecting world global. You have the, the actual lines from the patents. And at the same time, you have like this whole bringing the pieces together. So like, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, how did you come up with that logo? Like, you know, who helped you design that logo? Yes. So um, I used a company. Oh, my goodness. The name's escaping me. They're based out of the UK. I'll have to follow up with you. Um, They were phenomenal. They basically worked with me and asked a lot of questions, I think, which 
you know, when you're working with any service-based interest industry, I think you want them to be asking you a lot of questions. And I just, I had this vision of basically everything you just described of, you know, being interconnected and this virtual earth and, you know, bringing all the pieces together. And I'm glad you said that because some I've only had this once. Someone said, it looks like the world's falling apart. And I said, oh no, <laughs> it's meant to be coming together. <laughs> so, so just keeping things to get connected and I'm hoping it conveys also kind of like high tech. Um, it does. A little it bit. Does. Good. Good. Glad yeah, to I hear mean, well, You got the big blue color. So I mean, by default, anyone that's <laughs> only think about big blue, they'll see the IBM blue and it'll be relative by default. So, <laughs> definitely. So, I mean, just, just talk about like, like your day to day. I mean, obviously you're talking about, you have kids, you, you have a family, you have a significant other, you still have your dad. So what does your morning habits, your morning routines look like? Uh, so every morning I start with yoga and some morning affirmations, which have actually been far more helpful than I would have expected. Um, so just some, you know, I'm strong and healthy. I'm capable of doing this. Just repeating most to myself as I do my yoga. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is uh, I read, have you ever read the book Atomic Habits? Oh yeah. It's one of my favorites. So, oh my gosh. I love, so habit stacking. I'm trying to be better about stacking my habits together. Um, so the big one for me is just getting, if I don't have that yoga and those affirmations, my whole day is just thrown off. Uh, then I have my greens and some coffee and hit the road. <laughs> Each day is a little different. It depends. Um, I typically try to do block scheduling so um, and day scheduling. So Tuesdays and Thursdays, I try to keep for my networking meetings. Um, I believe you're also a member of Success Champion Networking. Yes. You're going to be a speaker I see at the summit. Um, yes. So I'm just started a chapter in New Hampshire with, um, Steve Wallace. So that's part of my Tuesday routine is, uh, have my SCN meetings and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I usually keep open for client meetings. And I have learned as I've been growing really quickly to keep more free time, quote unquote free on my calendar, because things always pop up that are unexpected. Um, it seems like that's just part of being a business owner in general is things, unexpected things just happen. And I think if you don't have the time built in for that, things can just like spiral out of control. So that's been one thing that's been really helpful for me. So I think based on what you just said, I mean, you alluded to like my next question about like books and uh, I mean, habit stacking is one of the things and, and if anybody that doesn't understand what habit stacking is, essentially it's, it's, it's planning out your day and essentially you have a roadmap to kind of stack these habits so it becomes routine to where you stop thinking about it and then you get more effective day to day every single day. So I want you to talk about like what other books kind of helped you on your journey to get you to where you are. So it's hard to pick a couple um that one's been definitely a good one the other one i don't know if i can say this but it's on yourself by yeah. have you ever read that book yeah, yeah. so it is uh J gary john gary bishop gary john bishop yeah. i think he, he was it is irish right is he irish yes. scottish yeah 
that book, I've actually read it twice. Um, it was very good for me to just kind of get rid of that head trash and that thinking about, I can't do this. And especially as a business owner, um, your failures, you can kind of make them out to be such a big deal. How could I possibly do this? This is horrible. And I've learned to, if I wouldn't talk to a stranger that way, I shouldn't be talking to myself that way. So if a stranger were to make that kind of mistake, would you ever say to them, you're such an idiot. How could you possibly do that? You know, or even maybe a little kid, if a stranger doesn't work. And so that's really been helpful for me to just be kinder to myself. And, you know, if I make a mistake, own it, fix it and move on, you know, don't, don't wallow in my pity of, oh no, how could I make this big mistake? It's okay. I made a mistake and I'm going to move on. Very cool. Very so, cool. so let's fast forward a little bit. I mean, obviously you have, and, and I think you've proven it time and time again on this episode, like your information on patents and trademarks are abundant, right? Have you had opportunity or are you at least thinking about maybe creating your own book as well? I have thought about it. Um, I don't know. I'm, there's a lot of information out there. I'm not quite sure how to spin that. Uh, there's a lot of information about how to, you know, how to patent it, mm -hmm. how to trademark it. I've thought about making a book about how not to, because I've seen a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so um, I think that maybe would be a good option. Yeah. If I could give you a little words of insight, I would say, Please. And, I, and I tell this all the time, because from a growth strategy standpoint, there's close to 8 billion people on this planet, right? And in your lifetime, let's say you've met 800,000 of these people, right? And out of the 800,000 people, maybe there's 10% of those people that actually may do business with you. They may become your friends. They may like you. So the, I think you're doing the world a disservice by not writing that book because your audience, your community of people, they want to hear from you. And until you do it, they're still going to be struggling, walking around in circles, trying to figure out the answers that you really have, but you're not giving it to them. I love that. I'll definitely something have to you, give that some thought. Something for you to think about. So with that, uh, let's talk about time frame, right? So like, what do you see yourself? And I, I, I just put that deadline for that book in there, but where do you see yourself 20 years from now? Hmm. Good question. Hopefully managing a firm of, I'll say 20 attorneys. Um, honestly, my, my number one goal is to be able to get the firm big enough that I can provide some pro bono services to startups and small businesses. Um, I actually recently helped a friend of mine who was stuck in a non-solicitation, non-compete um, with a former employer. And some of those, they're not enforceable and they're ridiculously overbroad, but it costs the small business. It can literally put a small business out of, out of business, just trying to defend something like that, even if it's overly broad. So that's really my goal of long-term is to, you know, have a sustaining firm and be able to provide those pro bono services to startups so that they don't go out of business, you know, trying to defend their business. So on the pro bono, are you planning on starting like a, another division, like, like a, a nonprofit side of things? Yeah, I think eventually. 
that would that would be nice to kind of spin off spin that off um yeah do some good (laughs) so talking about like doing things i mean obviously on a day-to-day basis there's systems in place there's websites there's probably tools what software do you use on a day-to-day basis that you would not be able to do what you do if you didn't have access to it so there are two systems that are Um, integrated together. One is just your regular Microsoft Office suite. Um, So we take advantage of Outlook and Teams and all that. And the other one is Datto Workplace, uh, which is a cloud-based data management system. And so it allows all of our attorneys working from all the different locations to have access to the same files. Um, and it's really nice for confidentiality purposes. Sometimes there are certain files that only certain people can see. When you're a physical space, it's sometimes hard to separate that. All I have to do is uncheck a box and then that person can no longer see the file. So both of those have been really helpful for me. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you've been in this space. Again, your dad brought you up in here. You have an engineering tech background who is your ideal avatar? Like who's the ideal customer? And obviously it could be a wide gambit, but if you had to work with someone, who would that person be? I would say a, a startup to small size software development company. The software development companies have a lot of IP needs that they're not aware of, whether it's patents, license agreements, non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements. Um, I have one software development company that they write software for the larger clients like iRobot and Amazon and things like that. And the larger clients like Amazon have their own agreements that my client has to sign. But for some of the other clients, let's say you go to them and say, hey, develop an app for me. Now, what if they develop something patentable through the course of that? Do you own it? Do they own it? That needs to be laid out clearly. And a lot of software development companies don't have that in place. There's kind of this, I want everyone to be able to use my idea (laughs) um, mentality in the software space, which I love. It's great, the sharing, but okay, do you want Microsoft to have that idea and be able to sue you for using it? Well, no, I don't want that. Okay, then let's protect it. <laughs> so okay. trying to avoid the worst case scenario. I mean, I'm just listening to you. And I mean, you said that so quickly and, and I don't think you realize it. I think that was the outline for your book right there. <laughs> like literally those those bits of nuggets and then to your point, I think most startup and founders, they don't even think about that, especially in that space of realm. So just, just a hint back to that book again. But um, let's talk about, final words of wisdom so let's say you're talking to this this startup founder right and he's creating software he's developing stuff he's thinking about SaaS. he's thinking about renewable revenue he's thinking about scaling what words of wisdom would you tell him to make sure that he doesn't make a mistake by not filing that patent before he makes it into the mainstream mm-hmm. so the number one which we touched on a little bit is to just make sure you have that patent before you disclose it because you don't want someone else to make money off of all of that you know, R&D and research and development that you've put into that product and make sure that you have license agreements in place. If you are licensing, you know, if you have SaaS software as a service, make sure you have a license agreement in place 
And that's another reason to have a patent is so that you have a patent to back up the licensing. And it can, it can also, sometimes when you're a business owner, you get kind of pigeonholed into this is what I want my product to do. Our job as a patent attorney is to expand that into, okay, but maybe this idea could be used for all of these other avenues and it can be licensed in those areas. And so we can kind of broaden things out that way. So definitely talk to a patent attorney as soon as you can, because even if I can't help you now, I will still take the time to talk to you and say, hey, make sure you touch base with me before you do this, or let me follow up with you in six months, things like that. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, how do they find you? I mean, do you prefer them find you on your website, social media? How can someone get in contact with you? Sure. Typically, the best way is right on my website. It's virtualipllc.com. And you can get my email addresses on there, as well as right on the homepage, there's a link to schedule a 15 minute consultation. And that's generally the best bet to get in touch. Very cool. So then now we're going into the bonus round. And I love the bonus round because like, like that, now you can kind of relax. I think we've given so much data, so much value on, on IPs. So my next question is, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, right, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, that person could be dead or alive. Who would it be and why? Hmm. That's a tough one. I'm going to say... This is probably cheesy, but it's okay. I'm going to say my grandmother because she passed away when I, she lived with us for many years and she passed away when I was a teenager and um, it would be great for her. I would just love for her to see what I've done and to be able to um, spend, spend that time with her because I, I just didn't know her as an adult. It would, be, it would be really awesome to know her as being an adult myself. Hmm. Um, yeah. Let's, let's continue down that road. So, I mean, if you could present to your grandmother and, and tell her, okay, my most significant achievement to date mm-hmm. is, what would that be? I would say giving other attorneys a better place to work hmm. and a more positive work environment. Um, it's been very, very rewarding. I actually got an email just yesterday from one of my attorneys, as well as inspiring other people. Um, I got a LinkedIn note this morning from another attorney and I've, even when I think I'm failing, like someone else is looking up to me and I just love that. She's like, you, you really inspire me. I was having a tough week, but I'm, I'm really able to keep going because you're such an inspiration. It's like, I'm inspiring other people. It's just, like, I wish I could show her that message. It's, it's pretty cool. It's very surreal reaching this. Not that I'm like famous by any means, but you know, just reaching that level of being able to help other people. Um, I love that. So that, that leads me to, if money wasn't a factor, would you still be doing what you're doing right now? Yes. I love what I'm doing. I, I love it. Very, very cool. So going into closing, I always like to, you know, everyone that I'm interviewing, I like to give you to become the host of the Boston Cage podcast. So the Boston Cage show is now yours. Now you're going to interview me. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask? Essay. Oh, 
Yes. Um, what do you think? Um, so I was very impressed that you know all about all of the trademark classifications and everything. <laughs> so um, what are, did I, anything that I say change, I mean, we talked mostly about patents, but that change any of your, maybe what you already thought about intellectual property or, you know, did anything that I'd say change either for trademarks or patents, or was that in line with what you had already thought? No, I, I think, I mean, uh, this is one reason why I have this show is it's kind of like, I, I'm, I'm like a jack of all trades and I just kind of have tentacles, but you specialize in what you specialize in. So like when I ask these particular questions, I'm trying to put myself in the, in the listener to ask those questions to get them fulfilled. And for you, it was definitely about the patents, not only seeing like your positive energy about it, but then kind of bringing into light like the the thing that we talked about earlier about the strategy, about being offensive versus defensive. And I've kind of known about it, but I didn't really knew that it was an actual legal thing. I just thought that the, the guys that I met were like really good hustlers and they figured out some kind of hack in the system. So when you brought that to, to light, it was kind of like, it makes perfect sense. If I'm going to talk to a lawyer, they need to know whether I'm going to be defensive or offensive. And you kind of clearly depicted that for me. Awesome. Yep. Any other questions? I can't think of any. I wish I, yeah. Cool. Well, cool. I definitely you. appreciate you. I think you you give so much insight to to an area that I think most people are business owners, they kind of shun upon or they don't have the budget for, or they kind of say, oh, I'll figure it out later. And what you really said, and to, to summarize it, is kind of like, you need to figure it out before later, because when later comes, you may not have anything to figure out at all at that point in time. Exactly. That was a great way of summarizing it. Well, I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. Great. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Cage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.